Welcome back to Expert Instruction, the Teach by Design podcast, where we dive deeper into the research surrounding student behavior by talking with the people who are implementing these practices, where they work, and with the students they support. I'm Megan Cave. It's that time of year where teams come together, data in hand, maybe kind of scooped up into a pile, and where they get down to the business of trying to make sense of everything that just happened. In this PBIS world where we live, I've seen the acronym DBDM or database decision-making more and more frequently. Maybe you have too. It's as if the process could somehow get whittled down into something so casual like, oh yeah, we make database decisions all the time. The thing is, it's starting to feel like the term or the acronym has been used so much in the way that we talk about PBIS that maybe we've lost just how complicated a task it really is. The process of analyzing graphs, creating action plans, and making informed decisions affecting the way your school supports everyone, that takes real work. The process of using data like this isn't gonna look the same for every team either. I mean, it's flexible enough, right, to fit any context, but actually, turns out, there are some norms that can help get you started. I mean, did you know that there were norms? I didn't, but yeah, there are. There are norms, you guys, and that's why we invited our guests today. Dr. Jessica Swain Bradway is with us. And Jessica, she's the executive director for the Northwest PBIS Network. In her work with schools, she focuses on equipping teachers with high leverage strategies for instruction, relationship building, and for designing effective learning environments. And Dr. Billy Joe Rodriguez is with us as well. Billy Joe comes to us from the Northwest PBIS Network too. She has more than 20 years of experience supporting students with diverse social and academic behavior needs and supporting schools in the way that they respond to and prevent disruptive behaviors. You guys, these women, they're coaches, like real coaches through and through. And every time I talk to them, I'm reminded of the way that access to coaching can strengthen and sustain the systems and practices you're already implementing. And I'm telling you that this episode is no different. During our conversation, we'll get into the core components, the real nitty gritty of what it means to use data to drive decisions. You'll hear their real world examples of how their teams have been able to make data a regular part of every team meeting, just so naturally. If you have found yourself right now in a place where you just don't know where to start using the data that you have to shape your decisions, guys, Billy Joe and Jessica are about to give you some really tangible first steps to get you moving in the right direction. Jessica and Billy Joe, thanks for being here today. Okay, so when we were talking about uh, this episode, Jessica, you brought up something that I've actually heard quite a bit in passing, and I've just sort of taken it as like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, I know what that means, but I don't actually, so I'm super glad that you're here to tell me all about it. You had actually said that uh, in your experience with schools, you've noticed that people are data rich and information poor, and I would really love for you to say more about that. Like, what is the difference between having data and having information, and why would it be important to to make that distinction and to maybe encourage people to have more information at their disposal. Well, I, first of all, thank you for having us, Megan. And yeah. um, I 
I stole that from somewhere else. Some very smart person way before me said that. And it really, I think it really summarizes very well this um, kind of the traditional system we've inherited in schools and for, for data is that it's an input only type of system, right? So information is, is one direction. And that is kind of the backdrop for some of the pieces we're stuck in, if you will. Um, and one way information is not culturally responsive, it's not equitable in any way, it's not, doesn't inform mental health prevention, right? It's very one directional. So a lot of times we're putting a lot of information, a lot of data into various systems that are meant to store and hang out there and, and go on to somewhere else, but are not immediately available to us as educational decision makers. Mm. So if you kind of look at that in contrast with really, really good reading programs, really robust reading programs and approaches, teachers get immediate information about what's going on with the kids' reading skills and will change their instruction based on that. That's information that shifts their behavior. But unfortunately, in a lot of our districts, we're stuck with those one direction data systems that don't allow us to, to have real information to act on. So that's a lot of times what I see as real hindrance in our districts for doing high quality support work for kiddos. Yes, it's that interpretive component. It's uh, somehow transforming the data point that you enter into a system into actual information that you can use to change something about the yep. way that your school works or the way that you do things in your building or the way that students interact with each other. Yeah, I think that's really key. I recently ran across an analogy um, oh. that I really related to. It's a visual analogy, so we'll make it work on the podcast, but uh -huh. um, is thinking about data and buildings, trying to use data in districts, thinking about it like Legos, uh, which I can relate to. My my son is almost seven, and so, um, you know, and so the big pile of just jumbled up pieces mm. in the floor, you know, is often what schools are looking at is just lots of pieces that have been put in a pile that aren't necessarily telling them anything meaningful or, you know, and so it takes a lot of construction. Uh, sometimes there's direction. Sometimes it's that creativity of like, what is it that I want to know? What am I trying to really understand? And do I even have the right pieces in the pile to build my, you know, my design or do I not have any wheels? Um, and so I think, for me, that analogy has really been helpful in thinking about our role in, A, making sure we have the right Legos in the pile or we can find the ones we're looking for. And then when we do have those piles, not just sorting them by color or sorting them, you know, in some way that's someone else created, but actually uh, sorting those into a way that we can design the story or the understanding of what that information is actually building for us and then how we can use that to create you know, essentially better outcomes for kids if we follow the, the analogy all the way through. So that, yeah. that Lego analogy has been a helpful way for me to think about how um, complicated sometimes the work is. Sure, I, that. I, I do too, because the, I, I start to think about how I see Legos and, um, and how I can build with them versus how my kids play with them versus how someone who is on one of those shows where they build these crazy things with Legos. And I 
I think about how we could all look at the same pieces of data and create some different solution um, uh, based on that, on, on all of those, depending on our context, depending on our role within the building. Um, so it's a really good analogy that you can actually take in a lot of different ways. So yeah, I yeah, love I, it. I do I too. I yeah. do too. How do you help schools? Like, so in your in your roles as coaches, when you're working with school teams and they've got all of these pieces of information in front of them, how do you help them to transform their data into information that they can use for making decisions? Well, I like to joke that we shame them. We just shame the grownups <laughs> until they make the choice we want them to do. But I just because <laughs> I like to joke about it. Um, it's interesting. I love that. A Lego analogy. And then Megan, I love how you brought it around to, we could, I could make anything I wanted from those Legos. And, yes. and I, this is why I love our, our framework that says, uh, you still have to follow the evidence. You still have to follow the strategies to get to the behavioral outcomes you want. Because I think about this idea of how far away are we from the thing we want to see change. And that takes us to is it observable? Is it measurable? Mm. Which helps us avoid inference. And we avoid inference. We're less likely to fall into the implicit bias camp, right? We're less likely to blame a kid for having anxiety and just see it as a behavior. So I really love to back out and say, what's the thing you want to see be different? And, and really support folks to be as concrete as possible. And then say, what's the most direct measure you have of that? Um, because even something like check-in, check-out points is nice. And if we're doing check-in, check-out really well, then we're giving a kiddo feedback and the point, points reflect how they're doing that day. But those aren't the points we're going to hang our hats on for a successful human being at the end of the school year. So try to get folks very concrete, move away from inferences and those big assumptions and say, let's see and hear that thing and and what do you want to be different there? And we kind of start with big picture and, and back out to there. Yeah, I would echo that. My notes when I was thinking about this particular question is starting with asking what it is that you want to know, right? And I'm very behavioral by training and the way that I operationalize and view the world. Um, and so, you know, what Jessica was getting at was operationalizing that. Like, what does it look like and sound like and feel like and then what information or data do you have that could answer what it is that you want to know? And sometimes schools have the potential to answer it, but their data aren't believable. They aren't valid, right? And so we have to kind of look at, do you have it? <laughs> is it actually accurate? You know, whose voice is represented in that data? Mm, um, how did we gather it? What source did it come from? Um, because I think that's been a big learning for a lot of our schools is, they say, I want to know this and I want to have this and here's the data that I have. But actually, I have this lived experience that's telling me that this isn't valid. Mm -hmm. um, and those are only in those cases where we can see it. Right. So the likelihood of picking that up um, when we are thinking about, you know, some of those topics around equity or historically underserved populations where maybe we don't see the from our lived experience because it's the students is different than our lived experience. So um yeah, and then I think as we do that, we spend a lot of time looking at strengths and then the the holes. 
Um, and so I think our teams and our schools, educators that we work with can be really critical of themselves. Um, and so I think as coaches, we have to back up and say, what are you doing well and how do we leverage that and do more of that? Um, and then, you know, also like Jessica was saying, look for those holes in our system before we jump to trying to fix or, you know, what people talk about as othering, right, blaming the the group or the student or the problem um, is really kind of take that step back and say, okay, here's our strengths. Here's some things we're missing in our system based on our data, based on our lived experiences. Um, so there's a lot of reframe there, too, in terms of how we think about what the data mean. Because I think as educators, often our tendency is to go to fixing the the problem that's most in front of us when a lot of times the data are indicating maybe there's a systems challenge or something that um, is going to be a longer term fix than yeah. the, the students need. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a human uh, experience to try and when you see something or you hear about a problem, someone's talking to you and saying like, oh, I'm really struggling with this thing. I think as a listener, and a human being and a friend and someone who has, you know, empathy for someone, your initial response is going to be, well, here, what can we, what can I do to help? How can I, how can I help you fix whatever's going on and make it better? So I think that it's really, it makes a lot of sense to me that people would be looking at their, at the data that they have in front of them, looking for the problems and immediately jumping into solutions. Yeah. And so what I'm hearing though, is that like, there is a step to discussing. And I think that's where we get into this how do you actually use data to shape the decisions that you are trying to make? Um, that there's a step that's, that needs to be put in place where you're actually looking at the data and then you're, you're using it to inform how you're going, the, the solutions that you have in front of you, rather than just looking at data and jumping to solutions that you actually need to have a process to I don't know, go over the information and, and make it make sense. Yeah. So what would be, what would be norms? Like, norms. norms. <laughs> I mean, that is something we've really been learning. I think is there actually needs to be explicit norms around how we're going to talk about and look at and use our data. Um, mm -hmm. And, and for me, I mean, as a coach, that's been a newer learning. I think um, we've had a lot of other norms about how you run your meetings, how you, you know, yes. start and start and end and all of those things, but really having some norms around the conversations that we're going to have, the processes that we're going to take when we do this work um, is, so is important. Say more, say more about that. Yeah. Tell everybody, what are these norms? Fill <laughs> <laughs> us in. Don't gatekeep, man. <laughs> I almost, I almost feel like these things will change depending on where people are in terms of their fluency with the idea yes. that behavior is contextual, right? So um, we might, I know that Billy Joe and I, that we'll go in and say, are these data reliable? Do they really reflect what you think are, is going on in, in this moment? And that's where that lived experience comes up and people say, no. Yes. Yeah. Oh, we're seeing more. This is crazy. All of our kids with IEP is a 500 referrals. I mean, you hear these, these big things that really reflect emotion. And so that, that are these data really what you see going on in the day-to-day -day experience uh -huh. of teachers is a great place to start. Uh -huh. And then depending on where folks are with their fluency and their capacity to do the work, because that's something we have to really take into consideration as coaches do they have capacity for administrators to support teachers to write the referrals accurately? 
That means so they understand the differences between this is not really a big deal and the big deal wheel, or man, this is really disruptive to, to learning. And so we, we really kind of pick through what do they do well that we can maximize so they aren't getting these like, oh my gosh, you're the worst type <laughs> messages or they don't feel that way. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say starting with the idea that it's really normal and important for us to look at our data in front of us and not take it personally, right? It's not personal, but if we go back to that direct you know, connection between the behavior and, and how we influence that behavior to change in a positive way, we can't have a conversation about the kiddo behavior without having a conversation around the fidelity of our behavior. And systems are created through our collective behavior, right? We need those things there. So normalizing that my behaviors as a teacher influence kid behavior, normalizing that we look at information and it's not a personal attack, it's just information in front of us to shift. Mm -hmm. I think those are two big norms that probably carry through. And then depending on where folks are in terms of their fluency mm -hmm. with some of these ideas, that will kind of change and shape over time where our focus goes as coaches. I see. Yeah, and then I think there's some guidance that teams have been asking us for, and I love the cultural responsive field guide. I've been using that a lot. Isn't um, it wonderful? Yeah, <laughs> and there's some operating procedures and some enhancements around you know, supportive environment and teaming, um, particularly around reviewing data um, and things like you know discussing uh, issues of race or culture openly and respectfully, um, those kinds of pieces, uh, making sure that we make an explicit effort to look at our data, uh, you know, in a disaggregated way. Um, and then, like I mentioned, kind of from the earlier around um, coming back to what we can influence and where our changes are and not blaming, right, or turning it into a judgment about, you know, groups of students or their needs or their teachers or their families. Um, and so, but that takes it takes norm. I mean, it takes practice and it takes being clear about, you know, the process and doing it because it is not always comfortable um, initially until we get past that place of just recognizing that this is part of, you know, the way that we do things and making that be part of our procedures. I think the norm of a meeting agenda that requires we use data, a norm of we look at our uh, risk ratios across our different groups of students at, at every meeting that we have, mm -hmm. um, meeting norms where disagreement is okay. I mean, the things that facilitate those harder conversations and continue to make us accountable for those conversations, uh, those are really critical and they don't, we can't just allow them to be if there's one really strong facilitator. So yeah, we've got Megan, she's our facilitator. She's gonna keep us on track, but those agendas and those norms that are part of every team meeting so that we can't continue to escape uh, when a conversation is difficult, right? If it's because, wow, look, all of our students in this group are doing really great or all of our students in this group are doing poorly and I'm being facetious with all, sure. but those are some of the, the norms and the systems pieces that guide our collective behavior um, in the direction of the real way to put those Legos together, which is like, you wanna build the Death Star. There is an exquisite map and booklet that is probably actually, it's four booklets long, I know, cause we have it. And you can follow that and build the best that the Death Star. So we, that's that fidelity piece again, that, you know, we wanna, we wanna go back and look at those fidelity data too, of the things that we're doing in the school environment and look at that as telling 
is part of the complete story when we look at the kiddo outcomes too, right? We can't just do one or the other. Right, right. I wanted to go back to something too that you had said, um, Billy Joe, about like when you, you're talking about the things that you're doing well and then understanding when your data are actually telling you that you need to do something about your systems. Is there, how do you know when that's the case? How do you know that it's a, a systems issue and not something else? Yeah, that sounds like an easy question. <laughs> but, uh, I know I ask it knowing that it's definitely not, but I think that well, this is something that's come up for me. It's a question that's come up for me. That's like, when I'm looking at something, how do I know that like the system is actually working the way that it's, that we intend it to, and that what we're seeing is actually reflective of something else that's going on in the building? Yeah, well, one way that we know is I think we need to look at how many kids and people it's impacting. Mm -hmm. um, and so and I'm, I've sat in meetings sometimes, here two meetings, and it sounds like, oh, let's, you know, we're looking at Megan's data and she's not making progress. And so we're figuring out, oh, she's not coming to check out at the end of the day. So let's do something different for Megan. And then we go to, the, we go to Jessica and we have mm -hmm. a similar conversation. And as a coach, by the time we've had that similar conversation about three or four kids, I'm like, hold on a minute, what's happening at the end of the day? Yeah. Oh, those kids are all in fifth grade and PE is happening and they're missing PE to go to <laughs> check out. And so guess what's happening? They're not, they're not accessing that part of their intervention because it's conflicting with, um, you know, a preferred activity. And so that's an example of where rather than trying to solve student by student by student, when we can back up and say, oh, the way we've set up our system for this group, whether it's all of our kids or some of our kids is not working. Um, then we can be much more efficient. So that's one key is looking at how how much impact are we having? Mm -hmm. um, I think another piece for me is kind of thinking of systems are those things that help adults, right? <laughs> like tell us what to do. <laughs> and so when adults are, you know, they've got a good practice in their hands, they've got something evidence-based like check and check out and they're doing it pretty well, then that's another indication of like, okay, how can we kind of back up here and look at why is this thing that we are trying to do that we know should be working, not working, um, especially when we're looking at multiple students being impacted or multiple adults. So that's my biggest cue um, is how, okay. how the, the sphere of influence, um, and it might not be a lot. Sometimes it could be a systems thing, but it's all of our students from a certain group, you know, that are being impacted. So it's not always about uh, overall numbers, but also those, you know, kind of disaggregated numbers too, where we're looking at um, having an impact on groups of students. Mm -hmm. This might be too tangential, but I'm going to say it now because it. it relates to this. Take I've been thinking, thinking mm -hmm. about this a lot um, and kind of those systems pieces is another way that this has come up um, and my thinking about it has really changed over the last few years. And in some ways, I, you know better, you do better. I guess I will I'll, I'll refrain from feeling guilty, but um, <laughs> I think about times when we've been problem solving for students and in intervention. Um, and using data, right, and doing something like check and check out, and they're making progress, and the teachers come back to me and said, well, should I keep doing this other thing that I'm doing with my whole class with this student, because it seems to be making this one student or sometimes group of students behavior worse. Um, back in the day when we didn't always have all the evidence around clip charts, for example, and we had mm -hmm. many teachers that were doing that, they would say, 
you know, should I keep using this clip chart practice for this student now that I've got them on this check and check out intervention because the clip chart doesn't seem to help. And in fact, it kind of makes things worse. And I remember saying, no, don't, you know, don't do that clip chart thing anymore. Just do the thing that works. But now when I think about that from kind of an equity lens and from a data lens, we should probably not be doing things that are harmful to some kids for any kids. <laughs> so that's another example of the systems piece, you know, even though some kids weren't necessarily being harmed or it wasn't necessarily making their behavior worse, <laughs> it's a good example of that system behind that practice wasn't supporting all of our students. And so when we think about access um, and our data showing who's accessing the things that we are doing, um, that's another piece is if it's not working and it's actually harmful for some students, then we probably should be examining whether that system or practice should be in place for any students, even if for some of them, it's not necessarily appearing to be harmful, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, thinking about the data that you're looking at related to one student or a group of students and saying that this practice isn't working for them, consider whether it's actually working for anyone is something that I hadn't considered before. So yeah, I think that's great. Um, what other uh, systems system signs, Jessica? I don't know if I. If oh no, I, you did. You did great. Really, I love it. I love your response, and <laughs> you said a few things that, of course, get me thinking. It's one of the mm -hmm. reasons I love speaking with you. Mm -hmm. I mean, the all summer few, right? Is this that's a system? That's a big tell for a systems issue, or the extent of the systems issue? Because I kind of think it's always a systems issue. I mean, it could be a systems sure. issue that I have such complex mental health needs that are not being addressed yet that this system is currently unable, despite the layer of protective factors and the foundation there, we haven't figured it out for me. So how, or it could be that we, we say, and I'm gonna, I was a former high school teacher, so I'll poke at high school teachers a little bit. 60% of our freshmen are failing out one. What's wrong with those freshmen, right? So it's the extent of the system's problem. Mm. Um, and I think that that's, you know, go back to, are we doing what we said we were going to do, which is one of the, I think, really important data pieces, right? We ask, what are we doing? Are we doing what we said we were gonna do? And is it getting the intended impact or outcome for kids? Mm -hmm. Is that, and this is one of the things I think we've, as we know better, we do better here with what you were saying, Billy Joe. It's not just because we kind of need to redefine work, what works because some kids are being quiet or because I send Megan out in the hallway mm. because I've had enough with her and now I feel better, what is working? And I kind of have to re redefine that and then use our fidelity measures to, as well as other data, kiddo survey data, is it actually working? So did I, did I help or harm the relationship? Did it teach or reteach the intended skills for a kiddo? I think those are two big questions that help us stay in that evidence-based direction, a protective direction. Mm -hmm. And then I can ask kids, do you feel like your teacher cares about you? When something goes wrong in the classroom, do you feel like your teacher manages it well? Um, there's this field of study called institutional betrayal that's so interesting to me. Um, and it's the extent to which when something goes wrong, the institution you were dependent upon takes care of you. So the army, your college, university, and it was actually started to investigate um, sexual misconduct in, on, 
in universities. So mm -hmm. how is that resolved? What is really interesting to me though, is the questions that are asked from that process are so, would be so complementary to creating that positive environment in the school. So we think about the sources of data we need from kids. Do they feel taken care of? Do they feel the rules apply to everyone? Are they satisfied even when something goes wrong that somebody heard them? And those are, those are very important questions for us to ask, particularly related to the needs of kiddos that have been historically underserved mm -hmm. and marginalized through the school system. I think it's one of those sources of information, asking kids and asking families that gives us more information, a really rich story, if you will, and takes us past just how many kids we have failing algebra one. Yeah. Is it working and who is it working for? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like adding that question to the list of questions we seem to be developing here as we keep going in the conversation. <laughs> um, speaking of those two, those two questions that you mentioned earlier, those um, are we doing what we said we would do and uh, what is the impact that it's having? Um, and I think these are two questions that we ask around here all the time because we always consider fidelity and we always consider outcomes. Now, when I first started knowing anything about the data that schools use, uh, this idea of collecting fidelity data is, was like, who's doing that? You know, but I know that people are, and I know that it's also important because it gets to this issue of, is it a systems piece? Are we actually doing the thing that we said that we were going to be doing? And if we're not, then before we can even start to talk about how we're going to change something, we need to at least start with a baseline and understand, you know, did this thing that we wanted to do actually work because, and who did it work for? Um, so if you, if you are a team who has collected some level of fidelity data and you have some outcome data that's associated with it, whether it's referrals or uh, check and check out point cards or whatever it is. So you've got these two pieces and you've got these two questions to answer which comes first? Like, what is the chicken egg situation? Do you look at the fidelity data first and then the outcome? Do you look at them simultaneously? Do you just hope that it comes to you in a fever dream in your team meeting? How do you, what do you do? What do you do? Sort of. <laughs> I, I think so. I think you throw it like doctor, wet pasta on the wall just like and just say, what's, what's that? Whichever sticks. Whichever mm -hmm. sticks. Yeah. I sort of think it, um, in a lot of this good coaching and maybe Jessica will disagree with me, but you, you start where there's, Please do. <laughs> you, for me, I, I, when I'm working, especially with a new team and building trust or getting to know them, which we do a lot of in our current roles, mm -hmm. um, being more external to a lot of our districts is starting where that interest is. So if what we're interested in is, did it work? Then let's look at, did it work? And then if it did, why do we think it did? What data do we have to support that? Oh. If the interest is in it didn't work, um, you know, and, and so, and then kind of going from there, I, I have found that when we can talk the talk of the questions of the team, so if I'm talking to an administrator and they care about money or resources, you know, then we kind of start there and I frame the, the data and the conversations that kind of help, it, help them look at it through the lens that's going to help make, help them make sense of it. Um, and so I think it's, for me, it's helping kind of paint the story or building that house with that Lego data based on 
where people are um, and shaping that behavior, moving it forward. Um, I know Jessica alluded to that a minute ago too in a, in a different context, but how rich the conversations are, how sophisticated they are, how much the noodle stick to the wall mm -hmm. uh, depends mm -hmm. a bit on, you know, the team and their comfort and their um, skills and experience. Um, I know in working the last seven years in a local school district, when I was with Springfield, you know, it just became the way, eventually it became the way that we operated. Um, we did tiered fidelity inventory a couple times a year. There was no judgment. Um, teams got excited to, to do it and see where they were. And we used that purely for action planning. We used it for supporting coaching and professional development. And we incur we helped them link it to their school improvement plans, that same data. <laughs> so then there were these little pockets of just kind of consistently coming back to, look, here's how you can use this information to improve your work. Not as a, oh, we got you <laughs> or, oh, we expect it to be perfect. And then eventually, you know, as a team, we are looking at all every single building come before the board and do their board presentations. And they all have put tiered fidelity inventory in their presentation that was not required, you know, but it's because they were understanding the value of it and what that meant about the work that they were doing. And then they could relate that to the student outcomes that they were getting. Um, so for me, it's always kind of been, where's the interest? Let's start there first and then help people not lose sight of the rest of the pieces, right? If the interest is in the outcome data, then if they're not getting the outcomes or they are, but the fidelity is not there, well, what magic happened? You know, what, <laughs> what thing happened? Um, or if it's not working um, and we didn't do it, then no wonder we're not seeing the outcomes. So the thing yeah. that I'm I'm just I'm listening to the two of you and uh, the thing that kind of rings in my head is that, you know, this idea that PBIS is a framework and that it isn't something that you just implement the same way everywhere, that it's just this set of ideas that then you shape to fit your context um, and what works in one place may not work in another or um, what works with uh, one group of students may not work for another group of students. And um, there's just by, with that in mind, this whole concept of how do I make sense of my data can be really overwhelming. And as I'm sitting here listening to the two of you, there is certainly a value add when you add in good coaching to a team's process and that um, like you were saying, Billy Joe, that um, as you were working with these teams in Springfield, it became their habit to look at this information in a certain way. And it would never have, I could probably guess that it, that would not have happened if you had not coached them through the process of using these data on a regular basis in a regular kind of way. And so I think that there's, we can talk all day about how, how do, how should a team tackle their data and use it to inform their decisions. But I think that without that good coaching to get you started, it can be a real hurdle. Um, and the more that you talk about the differences that you've seen with the teams that you've worked with, the more that kind of comes to mind. So I just want to share, I think the work that you're doing is really you valuable. Stole my, you stole all my notes. I really? actually was just thinking, uh, I mean, one of my big takeaways with this and thinking about this topic and having watched 
the last couple of nights of NCAA basketball championships, mm-hmm. you know, um, I mean, we call our work, you know, with teams, right? And I think, again, I'm full of analogies today, but with the coaching <laughs> piece, you know, if you think of it like an athletics coach, uh, it's not go and tell people what to do, and then they come back and now they've magically, you know, won the national championship. Right. Um, it really is this process of, right, assessing where your team is, where they are, what skills do they have, what can we, you know, leverage, how are we going to set up our strategies to maximize our strengths, Um, and then how do we also identify what data are we using to identify those places that we need to um, bolster up our our approach, Um, understanding, you know, our our context in terms of our, our student needs, and then doing it over and over again, right? It's that modeling of what it looks like leading the team through it. I mean, all of the practices that good teachers do in terms of building skills with their students, that's what we do in terms of coaching. We help, you know, use the information that's available, get new information if the information's not great, right? We assess a student and they're sick and their reading score is not valid. We don't just move forward as if that represents their reading skills, right? Well, <laughs> we're kind of we're going to clean up that data and mm-hmm. um, kind of working through that same process. So I really think the words coach, you know, when we talk about coaching teams through, I mean, if we can put our heads into that model that we see so often in sports and athletics, um, I think there again, there's a lot of analogies and parallels there, um, and how you bring one athlete or one team along is going to look different depending on the context. Absolutely. Um, but the evidence base, right? Like the practices that are often used are similar um, when we kind of start with that foundation of, you know, what does a good instruction look like for a certain a certain topic? So yeah, that coaching contextualization, big takeaways in my notes that I'm glad they're coming across. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. The research proves it too, that uh, co- good coaching or access to coaching has this incredible impact on a school's ability to sustain something over the long term. Um, And I was just reading an article um, last week about the impact that a data analyst, someone even at the school that has, if you're a team and you have and you have uh, a need to look at data, assigning someone to that, um, to the job of looking at data um, first, and then talking as a team about um, what you saw, just to give people sort of the, the cliff notes version, like these are the big points that we really should discuss, saves everybody time, and it really focuses people on the decisions that need to be made. Yeah, I think that's great. Yeah. Just that that add on there. And I, I do think this is increasingly important. We can see the federal and the state governments in our region in really supporting more counselors in schools, more clinicians in schools, more explicit mental health supports. And if that means we have even more nuanced data, we have more sources of data, we may be considering data from, uh, you know, the local prevention office or someplace, you know, like emergency room calls, just different information. Uh And so having someone to help us negotiate that you know, through the district or in conjunction with the community. I think we've got higher, we understand more explicitly uh, how important it is to invest, invest in mental health. And this is another data set that we aren't necessarily really experts with 
in the school environment, right? Because we haven't really thought about it in that way yet, right? We're really starting yes. to do that. It's growing. Yes. But that, that person to support that work is has to be an absolute priority. And we've got super smart people around the country doing cost benefit comparisons. Not only how much do, do we get back when we implement something like PBIS, but how much of that do we get back in terms of math achievement? How much do we get back in terms of you know, social positive outcomes, right? So we've got stuff like that coming out of Johns Hopkins, but also Columbia Teachers College. So there's groups that are doing that work that, that I think is really important to show exactly what you were sharing with that article is that mm -hmm. we, we, there's a big return on that investment um, when we're looking at our data in a district. Agreed. Well, I really appreciate you all taking the time today to talk through some of this. It, I feel like we just touched the surface of it all and that we could have talked for another hour. But, um, but I think the, my big takeaways from our conversation today are all around like being sure to include questions around, did we actually do the thing that we set out to do? And really analyzing that in, in, in a in a personal way, but not to take it personally if you didn't, um, that you really do have to have to be open and honest and have that dialogue as a team to say, to admit when you didn't, when you didn't succeed in the way that you wanted to and that you wanna try again. So asking that question, did we do what we said we would do? Um, and, then, and then taking a look at like, what was the impact that we saw? Did it work and who did it work for? Um, and making sure that you include, um, that you're able first to disaggregate those data and to trust them as reliable, um, to embed some kind of um, understanding within your school that data are important and critical and how you're using them and that it's not a punishment, it's actually a way to inform the decisions and to shape the way that school works for everyone. Um, uh, but then being able to disaggregate those data, look at those groups and see how, um, how your systems are affecting it, each of them differently. Um, and then moving from there to see how can, how can we do things differently and in including students and families um, in those conversations is all really critical. And the way to do that as efficiently as you can is to, is to actually embed a coach within your team to at least get you started through these processes until they become a rhythm in the way that you're doing things. And to ask these people who are so gifted at what they do, what to do, because it can be so overwhelming and they can really, a coach can help just shape those conversations and really guide you in your, um, in your framework. So I learned a lot from all of you and I really appreciate, I do, I've learned some things. I mean, we've been talking about this stuff for a really long time and there's always something new um, to take away. So I really appreciate you taking the time.